0: Okay, if Margaret Atwood was a bird, I'd say she was a cross between an osprey and a magpie. Ospreys are found all over the world, except in Antarctica. They're able to scope out vast landscapes and spot what's important. They have amazing eyesight. In fact, the military has subjected it to many studies. It enables the bird to see fish from way up above bodies of water and determine what depth they're swimming at and which are the tastiest, and when they're close to the surface so that they can scoop them up. Her unique talons allow her to rearrange her catch so that it faces forward as she carries it to her nest. She travels extensively as far as 4,200 miles over a 45 day period, but always returns to the same area every year. In most cases, ospreys are monogamous and make for life. Magpies hear the sound of grubs and worms underground.
1: <laughs> uh oh, Nigel. <laughs> Who are those grubs and worms? Uh oh, somebody's gonna be insulted by that. <laughs>
0: They're pretty easy uh to make friends with and they form long friendships. They steal other birds' eggs. They're excellent mimics. They've got one of the most complex of all bird calls. It conveys a huge amount of information. And sometimes they'll sing right through <laughs> right through the night.
1: Not <laughs> anymore, Nigel. Uh,
0: okay. <laughs> They're among the most intelligent birds recognized by modern science. They recognize themselves in looking glasses, and they're attracted to shiny things. They use them in the structure of their nests, and their long tails provide them with the ability to make swift turns while in and on the air. Welcome, Margaret Atwood, to the Bibliophile.
1: So you wonder what I think of that.
0: No, I don't. I want to know what kind of bird you think you are.
1: Well, Nigel, I I thought you did pretty well, uh, but you left out a whole category. So let's try Phoenix.
0: (laughs) Well, did you crash and burn?
1: No, no. I I resurrect out of the ashes every hundred years.
0: (laughs) Okay. So you haven't crashed and burned then? Hmm.
1: Frequently. I'm just a lot older than you think.
0: (laughs) You're forever young. You are.
1: There you go. So out of the ashes, and and doesn't really exist, Nigel, or not in the way that your osprey and and magpie do.
0: You don't exist.
1: No, I'm some mythological bird, but but what do we mean by oh
0: it? oh the the phoenix? But you exist, right? Or do do you think you exist?
1: How do you know? You're seeing an image on a screen. You What's know how I know?
0: I, I know because I've seen those books. In the backdrop of all sorts of your zoom, your other zoom images. Yes,
1: but Nigel, how do you know that I wrote them? Yeah. Anyway, we won't. We'll we'll, we'll steer away from what is real.
0: Okay. Um, let's do that.
1: And and you can plunge into your other questions about other things that aren't real, such as uh, novels.
0: Okay. So, um, what do you do?
1: What do I do? You mean all day? What do I do all day or what do I do for a living?
0: Well, we're talking about the double.
1: Oh, you mean what do I do when I'm not writing books? Yeah. Yeah.
0: No, I I, I do care about that, but I care about the fact there's two of you.
1: Oh, there's two of everybody at least. There's at least two of everybody and probably quite a bit more. So you are different people to the different people that you know.
0: That's right,
1: writers are particularly double because they have a writing life, and then they have their their ordinary life, and um, the writing life persists in the forms of their books, or else it doesn't persist uh, depending. But certainly the romantic poets were of the mind that they were they were going to have this other life embodied in their in their poetry. Uh, so writers are who they are when they're writing. And then they're who they are when they're doing the dishes or taking the dog for a walk.
0: Okay. So then some have said they're alien to themselves. They don't know the other person.
1: Well, that just depends how far into their delusional writing they get, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> the kinds of lies they want to tell people like you. Right. Because <laughs> yeah. you can't depend on them to tell the truth about their writing, Nigel. No. No. no, the people say, what's the secret? And I say, would I tell it to you?
0: <laughs> yeah, okay. We're not going to do any more secrets then. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read back to you. It's going to take a little a little time.
1: Which book are you going to read back to me from? Is it going to be Negotiating with the Dead?
0: Thank you for reminding me, yeah.
1: Yes, so you know that they changed the title of that.
0: I do. In fact, I, found, I saw the new one in dustmans in Berlin about a, two months ago
1: yeah so they, they did I think they were afraid of the D word you know
0: yes dead. yes dead. they didn't they
1: thought maybe dead might be a bit off putting to the hopeful reader
0: that's so awful death isn't it I mean
1: no, I'm we're, not too worried about I, it like,
0: we, we, are, we are going to die that's true and we can't escape that so why are they afraid of it
1: I don't know Um, because it it won't sell yeah i think that was their feeling
0: it's like the word negro
1: i heard that absolutely it's like lawrence hill yes he was just quoting from an historical document but the u.s didn't want to use that title anyway we we have these changes of fashion but i think the dead word is is not a matter of change of fashion it's a matter of um, some people being squeamish.
0: And that's going to interfere with sales.
1: I don't know the thinking, Nigel, because it was not I who changed the title.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: That would be my guess.
0: Here's a sample of how I'd like you to answer all the rest of my questions. This, this is how you answered the question, why do writers write? It's kind of a summary.
1: Oh, yeah, that's a lot of fun. I loved doing that.
0: that. that is, well, here, I do want to read it out because it's, I mean, it's going to take me about half an hour, but. Okay, it,
1: go for it, Nigel.
0: <laughs> okay, so here we go. To record the world as it is. To set down the past before it's all forgotten. To excavate the past because it's been forgotten. To satisfy my desire for revenge. Because I knew I had to keep writing or else I would die. Because to write is to take risks, and it is only by taking risks that we know we are alive. To produce order out of chaos, to delight and instruct, to please myself, to express myself, to express myself beautifully, to create a perfect work of art, to reward the virtuous and punish the guilty, to hold a mirror up to nature, to hold a mirror up to the reader, to paint a portrait of society and its ills. To express the unexpressed life of the masses, to name the hitherto unnamed, to defend the human spirit and human integrity and honor, to thumb my nose at death, to make money so my children could have shoes, to to make money so I could sneer at those who formerly sneered at me, to show the bastards, because to create is human. Because to create is godlike. Because I hate the idea of having a job. To To make a new thing. To create a national (laughs) consciousness or a national conscience. To justify my failures in school. To justify my own view of myself and my life. Because I couldn't be a quote writer unless I actually did some writing. (laughs) to make myself appear more interesting than I actually was, to attract the love of a beautiful woman, to attract the love of any woman at all, to attract the love of a beautiful man, to rectify the imperfection of my miserable childhood, to thwart my parents, to spin a fascinating tale, to amuse and please the reader, to amuse and please myself, to pass the time, even though it would have passed anyway. Graphomania, compulsive logeria, because I was driven to it by some force outside my control, because I was possessed, because an angel dictated to me, because I fell into the embrace of the muse, because I got pregnant by the muse and needed to give birth to a book, because I had books instead of children, to serve art, to serve the collective unconsciousness, to serve history, to justify the ways of God toward man, to act out antisocial behavior for which I would have been punished in real life, to master a craft so I could generate texts, to subvert the establishment, to demonstrate that whatever is, is right, to experiment with new forms of perception, to create a recreational boudoir so the reader could go into it and have fun. (laughs) story took... Hold of me and wouldn't let me go, to search for understanding of the, the reader and myself, to cope with my depression, for my children, to make a name that would survive death, to defend a minority group or oppressed class, to speak for those who cannot speak for themselves, to expose appalling wrongs and atrocities, to record the times through which I've lived, to bear witness to horrifying events that I've survived to speak for the dead, to celebrate life in all its complexity, to praise the universe, to allow for the possibility of hope and redemption, to give back something of what has been given to
1: me. Yes, all of those are quotes, Nigel. You you didn't (laughs) come up with that? I recognized Alexander Pope, Samuel Beckett, uh, Milton. The boudoir one was from a Czech newspaper. Love
0: it. Okay, what I would like is I'd like that same kind of answer from every other question that I pose to you. Is that okay?
1: Well, no, the answers will be very long in that case.
0: That's okay. I've got more time than you do.
1: That's true. (laughs) In so many ways, Nigel.
0: (laughs) Well, I wish. I don't know. I think you're going to outlive me. Um, Okay, so... Let me pose the question to you again, then. Are you a high priestess? Are you a prophet, a court jester, a witness?
1: All. So writers are basically all. Um, But that depends on his looking at them. Um, So it was, was it a Habsburg? It was a ruler who said of Voltaire, this court jester is expensive. Um, But I I don't think Voltaire thought of himself as a court jester. (laughs) Um, It depends who's the ruling class and what place the artist has within it. Well, didn't he get
0: get out of France and set up a really nice chateau in Switzerland?
1: Who, Voltaire? Yeah. Uh, I forget what happened to him later in life, but I I don't think it was a French person who said this court jester is expensive. It was it was uh, somebody in another realm. He he traveled around, and so he did. So really it depends. It depends partly on his paying the bills, right? So I have another part in that book in which I said there's basically a limited number of ways in which artists can can buy their own cheese sandwiches, and one of those ways is a patron, and that could be the Pope. It could be a duke, it could be a king, it could be some rich person, it could be a granting organization. You know, the Canada Council is a patron. Um, It could be some prize-giving organization like the Writers' Trust in our country. So in our country, these people tend not to be aristocrats and popes and things like that. They tend to be um, associations of individuals who take it upon themselves to be the patrons so well, that's one way does, uh, does that compromise your role well it doesn't compromise mine because i don't get grants
0: <laughs> you did get one and it was a pretty good investment wasn't it
1: and it certainly was i got one in 1969 70 i was actually asked by the canada council to apply for it because in those days there were so few writers uh, that they didn't have enough senior people applying for them and they said you got to do this because otherwise they're going to abolish the category. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, 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 they did. I got, I think, $6,000, which was a lot of money in those times. You've paid a
0: bit more tax than that over the years. Oh,
1: Don't even talk about tax. <laughs> yeah, it's tax time, which is coming up.
0: So, yeah, so there's
1: that. So that's one way, having a patron, having money. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, that's people good. in the past who went into both the arts and the sciences in the 19th century had money of their own right. So because they didn't yet have people willing to support these activities, particularly science. A lot of the science in the 19th century was amateur. Darwin was an amateur, but he had money. Okay, so you can have money. You can marry money. You can have a day job. I've had a lot of those. And then do your other thing, basically at night, or early in the morning, or you can go to the market, or you can starve. That is not an option, Nigel. Because if you starve, you will not do any, make any art. No, but you're if self-selecting you, you yourself be, out of the art gene pool.
0: You can be hungry and do some good stuff in a short period of time, and then die.
1: Okay, being hungry is different from starving.
0: Okay.
1: okay. Yeah. I mean, the cheapest things to eat if you don't have a lot of money. Um, yes, peasant, peasant food. Yeah, well nutri things that have some nutrients such as potatoes. Yeah. Um turnips. I used to eat hot dogs. I used to eat craft mm-hmm. dinner, if you can imagine such a thing. Well yeah. you can you can jazz it up a bit.
0: You can chop the the wieners up into the
1: craft dinner. dinner. You can do that, but if you put some smoked paprika on it, it sort of, you know, perks it up a bit. (laughs) You probably don't remember rooming houses because you're too young. (laughs) Um, So I had a rooming house once in which I had one hot plate like this, and I used to get those, and I used to keep my food in the dresser. There was a dresser, so I kept it in the dresser drawers and you could get these boilable packages in those times. They've probably axed them since because I'm sure they were full of, you know, chemicals that got into you, but you could get a couple of those and you put them in a pot of boiling water on the one hot plate. This would be the kind of rooming house that, where you didn't have your own bathroom, and so then you would take the dishes into the shared bathroom and do them in the bathtub. Uh, so that's where you would find the other people's noodles and the Yeah, but
0: wait a second. What's this got to do with the role of the writer?
1: Quite a lot. We were talking about starving, right? (laughs) I'm just saying you can get by on really not very much.
0: Is the art better when you're hungry or not?
1: There is absolutely no relation. Zero relation. There's no relation either between whether a writer writes to make money or whether a writer does not write to make money. So Chekhov said famously... I never write except to make money and I, I do not write for any other reason. I think he was a bit lying, but he he definitely felt that he had to sell what he wrote. And yes. as we know Shakespeare was not only a playwright, he was an actor, manager, producer, director. And the reason we call it box office is that there was a box. There was this little tin box, people going in to the play, put their whatever the sum was, they put it into the little box. And that's why we call it box office. The thing he did the best with, believe it or not, and I'm sure you know this, were the history plays. He cleaned up with the history plays because it was the only at that time way outside of going and looking at marble people in Westminster Abbey that English people could get any grasp of their own history or what happened, say, to their grandfathers during the Wars of the Roses. So they, they flocked to these history plays, which depicted, quotes real people that they'd only ever heard about. And they could see them all dressed up, wearing crowns and things, which you didn't get to see every day. And uh, they were hugely popular, much more so than what we now consider the, the really big plays, we, much more popular than Hamlet, more than Macbeth. Uh, I think Richard III is still pretty popular. It was a history play, but it's got a noteworthy villain in it. Yeah, I
0: mean, when you put a guy with a hunchback.
1: Oh, it's not just the physical form. It's the speeches, which are quite gorgeous, especially at the beginning. So he is the model for a lot of villains since that time. I'm bad. I'm telling you I'm bad. And now you can watch me being bad.
0: You just explained how you write novels.
1: Uh, no, that's not always how you write novels. <laughs> it's it's one way of writing novels.
0: You're jumping ahead.
1: Yeah. Right. Okay. Where where do you want to go back to?
0: Well, I'm I'm not sure. Uh, I'm very intrigued with this. That, you know, Philip Larkin didn't like Grants. He the and he thought that you know you stuff the golden goose full of cream. It's not going to produce more uh, more golden eggs. so
1: well, I think it's a total spin of the roulette wheel. You know, right. some, it's got nothing to do with anything. Some people get grants and they do wonderful things with them.
0: Yeah, and yeah. other people okay. get
1: grants and do nothing with them. Some people don't get grants and do nothing with them and other people don't get grants and do very well. Okay. Um, there's no connection. there's no connection between whether a work makes a lot of money and whether it's any good. There is this form of snobbery that goes on both ways. Um, oh, you didn't make any money, poo-poo on you. Uh, other version, oh, you made money, poo-poo on you. You know? up you yes. To the market, or else uh, you're no good because you don't make any money. Doesn't it make sense that
0: if it's popular, it's got to be doing something good?
1: Why? <laughs> it might be doing something bad well that very is popular it, nigel it it
0: attracts <laughs> it attracts an audience and there's got to be something to be said for doing that
1: not necessarily we human beings are very mixed bag it could be a pandering to the absolute worst inclinations of of people and we we think of oh The Gutenberg Press was invented and outpoured all of these masterpieces. Actually, the Gutenberg Press was invented and outpoured a sort of never-ending stream of slush, pornography, uh, fiction, (laughs) political (laughs) pamphlets, And, you know, we've forgotten about those. We've forgotten about penny dreadfuls and all of the stuff that poured forth and the yellow press and all of that. And we say, oh, well, you know, it gave us war and peace. Uh, yes, it did, but it also gave us all of these other things, like any media form ever unless you, unless you're going to go with the myth that the customer is always right and that that yeah. people are good uh, forget it
0: no because i didn't, say, I, didn't I didn't say all or none like that I, but I do think there's something to be said <laughs> for appealing and, and and being able to appeal to an audience. I just want to say, though, I don't think that the pornography that came off Gutenberg's press would have been that exciting.
1: You know nothing about it, Nigel. <laughs> the Gutenberg You're an anybody. innocent person, Nigel.
0: <laughs> I need color, at least.
1: <laughs> oh, you want color porn?
0: Well, okay. it's, it, yeah. Anyway, let's move on. <laughs> um Okay, so the role of the are the writer is to what explore ideas to explore themselves to explore experience is, is, is well, ex- you
1: had the you had the list, and uh I then said after i I put that list in the book, I said, so I gave up on that because there there are so many motives I don't want motives I want roles it's the same thing oh, okay <laughs> yes it's it's what people think they're doing. So the worst thing that, that we can do is to tell artists what they have to do, right. to tell them what they ought to do. I say, let it rip. And then you can make up your mind after you actually see the art. Um, because otherwise you're in some kind of uh, prescriptive, you know, let us have the artists serving the people and we will tell them how to do that. And what does that sound like to you? Well, it sounds like a dictatorship to me. Yeah. And we have seen a lot of art like that produced by dictatorships. Some some of it is interesting, but probably not for the reasons the people were making it thought it was.
0: Okay. What do you think Ovid meant when he said, by my voice, I shall be known?
1: It wasn't Ovid who said that. It, It was Ovid who put... Those words in the mouth of a character about which he was writing.
0: Okay, I what I'm doing is I'm confusing the writer with the character, like so many people do.
1: That is what you're doing. So, as <laughs> I recall, that was the symbol of Kumai.
0: Yes, you can recall That's correctly.
1: The, at the moment at which she had, uh, she made a deal with Apollo, but she left something out. And uh, she asked for a long life, but she forgot to put in eternal youth. So she she shriveled up and got hung up in a leather sack. (laughs) And uh, mythology has it that she eventually turned into a spider. But before doing that, um, she said, all that that will be left of me is my words. And by my words, I shall be known. So let us suppose that Ovid was also speaking for himself. That's Uh, what I did. That's what you assumed, yes. Uh but then you have to put it in context.
0: Which is why we've got you here.
1: Is that why you've got me here? Hartley, I, thought yeah. got, I thought we've got me here because you've been after me for years to do this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, no, no. I wanted to do this in person. That's why it's taking so long. I think oh, I right? okay. would have given in a lot sooner if I said, Okay, let's just do it virtually. I'm I'm basically <laughs> I'm compromising here.
1: Yes, you are. Well, you know, it happens to the best of us. <laughs> You're compromising in an Ottawa airport hotel room. Even more, even more <laughs> Wait and, a minute.
0: That's supposed That wasn't supposed to get out.
1: It wasn't? Oh, well, you know. You know, writers can't trust them. <laughs> Paddle tales from the get-go. Uh,
0: okay, so but did you answer the question about my, my voice? Uh, by my voice, I shall be known?
1: Oh, you mean, do I think that about myself?
0: Well we We're could we could go there
1: Or are you asking whether I think I'm going to turn into a spider? Is that
0: <laughs> <the question? laughs> well some people already think you're a spider.
1: no, they don't they think I'm a witch. there's a difference. Well, okay,
0: between. yeah, that's true, okay. you're not are you gonna gonna go with further on the, my voice or not?
1: Um, well, you know, people start going on about what about your legacy, and I go, who cares? You know, I'm not gonna be there. Or if I am gonna no. be there, we're 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 talking about a different kind of reality, Nigel. Well I sure life. hope
0: there's one, but all you can do is hope, right? One what? One kind of cool different reality after we snap.
1: You don't necessarily want to hope that, Nigel, haven't okay. you, Ed Dante? I uh,
0: <laughs> yes.
1: Oh yes, oh yeah, I forgot. You're very naive and innocent. <laughs> No, I've I've
0: lived. I've lived an admirable life, though.
1: (laughs) Have you? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I I recommend (laughs) to you if you haven't already seen it, the television series called "The Good Place." Oh, thank you. Okay. You know what they say? Hell for the climate. No, heaven for the climate. Hell for the company. (laughs) The interesting people are in hell, basically. Uh, or they certainly are in Dante.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I, the thing is, though, he thought they were all assholes, though, didn't he? A lot of them.
1: Well, he thought they were, but that doesn't mean they're not interesting.
0: No, exactly. Okay. Can you please tell me about Alice Monroe's Hugo, the filthy moral idiot?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's in this story that Alice wrote called Material. <laughs> And uh, it's narrated by a woman who's married to a guy who uh, purports to be a writer. And when she's married to him, she doesn't really think he is because she doesn't think he's got the what it takes and he doesn't have the seriousness and, and she just kind of dismisses it. But then after their divorce, he comes out with a book and it's good, much to her surprise. Uh, and so she reads this book and, and she's really quite impressed with it. Uh, but then she realizes that hugo has has um utilized their downstairs neighbor he's basically cannibalized their downstairs neighbor and she uh she's in the course of writing him a letter sort of congratulating him on his book, but then she has second thoughts and she decides that what he has done is wrong in in appropriating this downstairs neighbor and putting her into a book although he did it very well so then she she says that he's a filthy moral idiot and that what he and that it's not enough to have written well so that's the story and it's basically alice probably thinking about what she herself was doing because that's what she was doing
0: Okay, so what? It's better to get it all out of your own imagination and not rape anyone else. No,
1: no, no. I'm I'm making no judgment about whether the okay the, the sentence on Hugo is is good or bad, and is it's entirely possible, as we know, if we think about it for one second, uh, to be very good at what you do, namely your art, and to be not a nice person. And uh, history has many examples. In fact. That seems to be the norm. (laughs) So the standards of niceness uh, that you would use in, say, selecting a roommate, you want your roommate to be nice. You don't want them to be always eating your food out of the fridge and uh, leaving their dirty laundry strewn about the floor. So the standards for for that kind of niceness are different from uh, what we want, what we're interested in when we read about people in books. Okay. We don't want everybody in a book to be nice all the time, because if they are number one, we'll think this isn't true to life, but we also think this is pretty boring.
0: Boring is the worst thing you can be. Well,
1: well, yeah, because you're not going to get the reader past page 15. So back in the days when I used to teach writing classes, usually as a drop in guest, I would only deal with, the first five pages because that's real life so close your eyes imagine that you walk into a bookstore there's your book got this beautiful cover on it you've participated in the design and has this great title you've chosen it out of you know 15 possible titles this is the best one and the reader picks up the book they've never heard of you before and what do they do first they look at the front jacket flap which has copy on it about the book, which the publishing company has given to an intern to write. They've given the most important job about the cover to an intern, uh, but luckily they've sent it to you to rewrite. So you've, written, you've already rewritten your own jacket copy. You've taken out the part that gives away the plot. You've rectified the names of the characters uh, and the reader looks at that and thinks, maybe I'll find this interesting. And then what do they do after they look at your picture on the back?
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, they got it.
1: Then then they open to page one. So if you can get them past page one, they might read read page two.
0: Yeah.
1: If you can get them past page two, they might read to page five.
0: Okay, so how do they do that?
1: How do you do that? Well, that depends on what kind of book you're writing and what kind and what your inclinations are. So if you're writing a murder mystery, my advice to you is move the corpse up towards the front. We do not want to go for 50 pages without a dead body because that's the form. I think Chekhov said, put the
0: gun on the wall.
1: I thought Chekhov said, put the gun on the desk. I think he said, "If you put a gun on the desk in Act One, it has to go off in Act 3. I'm
0: I'm staying with Wall, but i, I'm, I I've been wrong before.
1: Okay. Anyway, main point: gun.
0: Gun. Uh, second point: has to go
1: off in Act Three, which is why Samuel Beckett was what he was doing in Happy Days. He was subverting Chekhov. He puts a gun in her handbag, but by Act Three, she can't reach it. <laughs> That's right. She wants to. <laughs> he wants to, but she can't. It's out of reach. <laughs> naughty, naughty, Beckett.
0: Okay. So, is it? Tell a little story. Give a little surprise. Tell a little.
1: Uh, there is no. Give a little formula. surprise. There is no formula. No,
0: no, I haven't finished my. I haven't finished my formula yet.
1: Well, it, it sounds very repetitive,
0: or, Nigel. No, I've yeah. already done two of them, though. Here's my third one. Put in a great line, put in a smart line, put in a profound line, put in a funny line, put in a beautiful line, put in a true line, and then tell another story as fast as possible.
1: We'll try it and see if it works, Nigel.
0: I'm too lazy to be an author.
1: Okay. (laughs) I don't believe that. You're always doing these interviews. That's not lazy.
0: Okay, so I'm wrong. Where am I wrong with that little scenario there?
1: Because there's no formula.
0: There is no answer. That's right. You're no, saying there's no formula. I'm asking you a question, and you're saying there's no answer.
1: I'm saying it's hands-on with every manuscript. Okay. So you look at somebody else's manuscript, and you can you can you can doctor it. So, and you doctor it like this. You say this part here on page um, 15. That's your real opening. Move it to the front like that so it's all hands-on it's like a pottery class here's the mud what do you want to make out of the mud yeah if you do this you'll it'll actually work a bit better
0: yeah so it's like dump out the mud and then rewrite
1: yeah you don't have to dump out all of the mud but sometimes you do okay and sometimes you take out bits and put them in a little place on your computer they used to put them in a little place on your desk and then you can use them later and later might be another different book
0: yeah okay and then you want the the, the mud to be or what you've formed out of the mud you want it to be alive you don't want it to be dead
1: oh uh, yes one of my old uh, writer acquaintances and friends said there's only one important question to ask about any piece of writing and that is is it alive or is it dead and uh, I think that's pretty true too so something can have all kinds of quotes false uh, and be alive and something can be flawlessly structured and inert just it's not moving
0: so that's what you look for you when you're looking I don't for-, look
1: for anything I, no I, but
0: you you keep reading because it's alive is that
1: it oh yeah that uh, i do
0: yeah mm-hmm.
1: but what is alive for me may be different from what is alive for another person because reading is an entirely individual act and it's an interactive thing so everyone breathe brings to everything they're reading who they are and what they know already what their preferences are um it's no good asking somebody to read a a book featuring mushrooms if they have a a pathological aversion to mushrooms. They're not going to read that book. I'll quote
0: quote you here. You say the art of reading is just as singular as the art of writing.
1: And that is true. Everybody reads in a different way because everybody is a different person. And uh, what you may think is just wonderful, somebody else will find either offensive or or not worth it, or boring. And not only that, something that you find very, very interesting when you're 15, you'll go back to when you're 40, and you'll think, why did I think that was so great?
0: Yeah, I do that and a lot. And vice
1: versa. So I once taught Middle March. I was teaching at something called Sir George Williams, which is now part of Concordia. And you had to teach a class in the daytime to typical undergraduates of maybe 18 or 19 years old, and then you did the same class at night to returning students who were grownups. And I was teaching Victorian literature. So we, I taught Middlemarch, and the, the young kid said, this is the worst book we have ever read. And people right. make mistakes. They make all these mistakes in their lives and they marry the wrong person. And, and we're not going to do that. Then the adults said, this is the best book we have ever read People make all these mistakes in their lives and they marry the wrong people, and it's just like life.
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) They can see themselves. And the the first group.
1: The young kids could not. They couldn't imagine ever being like that.
0: Yeah, isn't that interesting? Uh, I want to get into darkness. That's a big thing, is like getting, you know, groping in the darkness. Okay,
1: so that's also in the introduction to.
0: Negotiating
1: yeah. with the dead so i go through all these yeah. things all these motives that writers say they have and i thought okay that's this isn't going to get me anywhere because <laughs> somebody could be both both getting back at their high school teachers and also justifying the ways of god to man i mean you could be both you can have lots of motives so motives yeah. is not going to do it so then i said to the writers that i knew what is it like going into a book and nobody said what do you mean going into All <laughs> said well, they're all novelists, so it just wouldn't necessarily work with poets, which poetry is a different for me it's a different part of the brain, but they they all gave me some version of being in darkness and even the ones that I that I read who I, who were dead by now, such as Virginia Woolf uh, and George Eliot. Um, that some version of darkness some version of illumination and some version of bringing something back out with you right it is essentially a descent to the underworld metaphor which is why the last chapter in my book about writing is called negotiating with the dead there there are a lot of descent stories when you're looking at writers quotes journeys one person said it was like being in a dark theater and then the the lights start coming up and you see something on the screen. And somebody said it was like at night crossing a, a river, wading through this dark water that you can't see. Uh, and there were quite a few tunnel metaphors. I hand you Dante, End of the Inferno, where they're, they've already climbed up the hairy legs of Satan and they're following the stream up, and finally they come out into the outside world where they see the stars. Um, So you're bringing something back with you, and what the writer typically brings back from the writer's journey is a story. So I think I invoke uh, Gilgamesh at that point, so he takes this long, long journey in search of immortality, and he does find um, a man who has been living forever he, he gets the secret of immortality but then he he drops it down a well
0: i know it's no good if you can't come back He'll with come anything back. He
1: just doesn't right. have the immortality thing with him he comes right. back and it says he's very tired and he writes he doesn't have the secret him. he right. writes it all down on a stone but what he writes down on a stone is the story of his journey
0: I I think you mentioned the fact that Dante really wanted to bring Beatrice back to life, and he couldn't. He he did in the process, I guess, but he didn't really bring her back to life.
1: No kidding. Uh, Yes, that is not my idea. It is the idea of Borges. Yes. Uh, That is who I'm quoting when I say that. Um, So, yes, what is... Um, something like like Dante's journey is the journey in search of Beatrice, of whom he ultimately finds, but then she turns away from him. Yeah. Very sad.
0: It's tragic, yeah. Well, I mean, getting back to death and the fact that they don't want to call it death or dead now, really when you think about it that's what we all want to do is bring loved ones back to life
1: well and a lot of people write books for that reason that's why there are so many books about essentially the past so things that are in the past in the past those people are still alive
0: and i suppose again in the process of writing you do it in a way uh, the, the little amount of writing that I've done, it's uh, I get to sort of relive the fun trips that I've taken. I <laughs> mean, in a way, I suppose you could say that by writing about someone who's dead, you do kind of bring them back to life for yourself in a way, in a in a different way.
1: Well, you're back into the world of invocation and conjuring. That's basically the piece of magic. Yes, um, that sort of writing is connected to.
0: And magic and writing do often and the writer often do go together, don't they?
1: Well, of course, writing, making making marks that meant something was once a very, very esoteric thing. Only a few people knew how to do it. And those people were both respected and feared Um, and the ability to send a message at a distance, you know, writing the message and sending it with the messenger. There's a a ton of folk tales and plot motifs that have to do with uh, letters that are exchanged, the wrong message gets there, messages that are not delivered, not delivered in time. Um, There's a lot of stories about messages and messengers. And um, I think in my book, my chapter five in that book, We talk about the book as messenger. So it is a time travel apparatus. The the writer and the reader are never in the same place at the same time. um, Unless you are on a screen typing a message that the reader is reading right then. Um, But even so, you're not in the same place. Because otherwise, why would you be doing that? I guess the most immediate kind of writing that I can think of is um, if you go to a book about the Chinese uh, cultural revolution called The World Turned Upside Down, when the people who took down the gang of four were plotting that, they were writing messages to each other on little pieces of paper that they were burning immediately because they rightly assumed that their houses were bugged. (laughs)
0: <laughs> it's like whatsapp or one of those things
1: whatsapp you mean the thing disappears immediately
0: yes yes
1: yeah, well this uh, on the other hand it's not secure because somebody could hack into your program so I'm yes two people standing in the same room filtering themselves from the security cameras writing little messages and burning them immediately that's you the know. only the only Situation I can think of in which writer and reader are in the same place at the same time. The rest of it is all time travel or space travel. Space and time travel. Unlike mm-hmm. oral storytelling in which the, in, in-person oral storytelling in which the storyteller and the audience are together. The storyteller therefore consents the mood of the crowd, can tailor the story to who is there in the room and uh, things become very um, individualized in that way.
0: Individualized to that audience.
1: That's what I mean.
0: Yeah. Here's a quote from you about time. You said, we're all stuck. We're all stuck in time like mice in molasses. That's very, very good. (laughs) That's part yes. of the reason that I read right there. Yes. That's one of the reasons I read. It's mice and molasses.
1: Okay. Well, as you can see, you're talking to somebody who's had some experience with mice. <laughs> <And I'll take laughs> That's right.
0: That's your science background.
1: <laughs> no, it's it's having a summer cottage. Come on. I yes.
0: Okay. So we've got about uh, eight minutes left.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Speaking of time. So, how can we fill this with something interesting?
1: I don't know. Tell me a story. Tell me how you got into doing this, Nigel. Uh, well, put it into uh, your head. Why are you hanging out with all these dubious people? You know, they're <laughs> not respectable.
0: You mean like you?
1: Yeah, very not respectable.
0: Well, okay. What's more important to me and many people that I know is having a really great conversation with a super smart, funny person. It doesn't get any better than that for me.
1: Well, good. And, and how many of the writers that you have talked to have been super smart and funny? Tell the truth, Nigel.
0: Well, none of them have been as smart and funny as you are.
1: Um, oh, <laughs> that is shameless. Very shameless. <laughs> Don't tell the others. <laughs> they'll, they'll, be, they'll get very unpopular. Uh, uh, yes. Nicely, no. turned. Nicely turned.
0: Um, okay, I've got... Uh, so how many
1: years have you been doing this?
0: Well, for about 10 or 12 years altogether, maybe. Something like that.
1: right. Okay. So are you intending to put this all together in some form or other? Is it going to be an archive and a library? Is it going to be a book? What are you going to do?
0: I'm just going to keep doing this. That's what I'm going to do.
1: But then you must have an ultimate goal.
0: No, I don't have an ultimate goal. I'm living for the the moment. Okay,
1: all right. (laughs) Serve the moment.
0: (laughs) No, no, uh, it's kind of like a little styrofoam ball, and well that's how I envisioned it to start with, and then there's all these different roles as they pertain to the book and so and they're little pins with nice little colored heads
1: okay
0: so, so you're talking you to
1: are. designers you're talking to editors to, everyone,
0: know. everyone that I can think of that might. In some way, have something to do with the book, and and uh-huh. uh, don't know exactly why I'm so focused on the book. It's kind of odd, but uh, in a way. But how do you explain that? You know, how well, do
1: you- I don't know. It is it is endlessly fascinating. So I'm going to send you my my cartoon that I every once in a while I do a, a comic for my editors or publishers. So I'll send you my editing bureau comic. Oh, okay. Thank you. You're welcome. I used to send them book tour comics to make them feel guilty. Lowest point I think was when I had to go on daytime television after two people who had just been demonstrating the colostomy bag. And I thought <laughs> I cannot compete with this. You <laughs> know. So so hi honey, what do you do? Oh, you wrote a book. <laughs>
0: Okay, finally, then, uh, speaking of colostomy bags.
1: No, I don't have one yet.
0: No, thank goodness. I want to return to the osprey and uh, the magpie. Okay. It seems to me that you have got such an incredible sort of vision or grasp of what's going on in the world. And then you're able to dive down and get the shiny little thing and then focus light on it. And then I just heard about what you're doing. You're pulling people together to come up with ideas that were.
1: Practical utopia
0: that will improve the world
1: that's right well it's it's a double-edged blade nigel because uh being a 19th century person once upon a time i read a lot of utopias and i also studied real ones that people were trying to enact i think my favorite is called fruit land uh these people were going to organize a perfect community around fruit but they knew nothing about fruit (laughs) that (laughs) lasted eight months Uh, (laughs) So I called it practical utopias because it can't be just making stuff up. And and the goal is it has to be uh, climate crisis oriented. So how can we, uh, what sort of house should we live in? What sort of paving material should we put on the road? What should we eat? What kind of new clothing are are we going to wear that isn't going to be so destructive? Um, And there's people working in all these fields now. They're doing it now. And, and tons more, but often they don't know about one another. So getting people together, giving them the tools and getting them to choose uh, their form. You know, what would you choose? Would you, what are the pluses and the minuses? Because there are no free lunches. Law of, second law of thermodynamics, no free lunches. Everything costs something. So what is the least expensive lunch? the most nutritious, least expensive lunch that we can put together that would have a net effect of um, drawing carbon down out of the atmosphere and not putting so much back into it like that. And there, there are people who have done the math. It's a difficult task. It's not impossible. There's a time limit on it think we we know these things so at first we were going to do this in november but it got too big and then we were going to do it in february and it got too big and and now we're doing it in october because it got too big (laughs) okay yeah there's a lot there than than we even know than we had any idea of when we when we started Uh, but it's really really interesting Uh, are we going to be able to technologize our way out of this it, it can't just be technology. It has to be people thinking differently, but it has to be partly technology like that.
0: And now
1: I have to go to another Zoom.
0: Yes. So I just want to wrap this up by saying you're, you are doing what the role of the writer is to save the world.
1: It is not.
0: <laughs> it's to save the world in a
1: practical way. No, it is not. That is not the role of the writer. That, that is, is the role. role. You just that said. You just said at, that. That is the role of people. So I'm. I'm and not very typical of anything, Nigel. No, but um, you're using you your celebrity. Tell, you're you can't your... tell writers what to do. You just can't. You can't tell them what their role is.
0: Yes. Okay. I noticed that. Yes. Okay.
1: They will choose their own roles.
0: Very good. Well. Thank you. I will now start bugging you again for our next interview, but the one in person. Uh, (laughs) Hopefully that that won't be in the too distant future. Thank you so
1: much. And thank you very much. Enjoy your hotel room. I will. Bye for now. (laughs) Bye.